0: Crime Scene & Cupcakes is an independent podcast created in the Anchor app funded mainly through advertising. The podcast often has coarse language and disturbing content. Please listen wisely. Hey guys, it's Marianne, dog mom, baker, true crime podcast maker, And today's podcast is covering the Fager family murders. Now, I know this case has been covered by some other amazing podcasters, Generation Y and True Crime all the time, and they did a great job, but I thought you guys might want to get a hot take from somebody that lives in Wichita and who was actually around when the crime happened and It was an absolutely just crazy time because, I mean, we had BTK going around and that is one of the things that drives me absolutely bonkers is when anybody talks about murders that happened in Wichita, Kansas in the eighties, the first thing everybody goes to is BTK. Now, BTK decides to make an appearance of his own in this case, and we'll get into that but it it is a little frustrating. Even when I talk about Krista Martin's case, the first thing anybody brings up is BTK. When I talk about Mary Krepper's case, the first thing everyone brings up is BTK. And we, we do have other active killers that have gone on and done things at that time period. So It, it it is a little frustrating and I, I almost wonder if, because we had him actively, you know, we had possibly other people copying his MO, if that wasn't a problem with crime that happened during the eighties. If everybody wasn't willing to just lump everything in on one murderer and so maybe other people just didn't take the time to think, huh, maybe somebody else committed this crime. Who knows? But you didn't come here to hear my thoughts, feelings, or anything else. You wanted to talk about the facts. So let's get into it. On December 31st, 1988, Mary Fager returns home to Wichita, Kansas after visiting family for three days. She gets home at about 12 o'clock in the afternoon and she realizes first, she had to unlock the door to get into the house. The second thing she realizes is for 12 o'clock in the afternoon, the house is really dark. So she goes and she opens the heavy curtains and she sees her husband laying on the floor. She also notices it almost looks like there had been a scuffle in the house. So she looks around a bit, looking for her daughters, and then realizes the family car isn't out there. So thinking her daughters must have taken the car, she runs across the street to call 911. Police arrive and they find Philip. Her husband, with his coat still on, had been shot twice in the back. Feared since Philip was still bundled up from the cold that he had probably just walked in the door. As the officers continue to go through the house looking to see if there are any other suspects or victims. One of the officers notices a bowing in the top of the hot tub in the basement where the hot tub top doesn't look like it's closed. It looks like something is causing the top of the uh, closure to not be setting correctly. And that's when they remove the top and they find nine-year-old Sherry in her pajamas and 16-year-old Kelly naked. Sherry had been tied up with electrical tape and strangled with the tape. And they also find Kelly with the tape around her neck. So before we get into any further of the case, I would like us to take a moment and get to know the victims, because that's what this is truly about. Not just about the crime, it's about the victims. And the Fagers were a close family who worked hard and did well for themselves. They took trips, they loved the outdoors and enjoyed camping and hiking. Philip and Mary met while they were both working at Boeing. Because here in Wichita, a lot of people That's their primary means of employment is working at the aircraft companies. Now Mary already had a daughter from a previous marriage, Kelly, and Philip accepted her as one of his own. The family moved into their dream home and Mary gave birth to another daughter, Sherry. The only thing their perfect home was missing was a sunroom, a place for the family to put their hot tub which was currently residing in their basement. Kelly attended Southeast High School and was said to have a nearly perfect grade point average. She was described as outgoing and preppy. And for those of you not born in the 80s or not a teenager in the 80s, being preppy is a huge compliment. Sherry, however, struggled a little more with her studies at Jefferson Elementary, but she was always daring and had a smile for everyone. Around this time, Kelly was 16 and dating a young man by the name of Todd Morris, who was 20. They had chats on the phone, one of which Kelly had told her boyfriend that the man building their sunroom had made her feel uneasy and she didn't like being alone with them. Todd had shared this with the Wichita Eagle. He also shared that the Monday before Christmas, he had given Kelly his Christmas gift to her, but his gift was still wrapped and inside the Fager home. Now, Wednesday, December 30th, 1987, was windy as it usually is here in Wichita, Kansas, and it was also bitter cold. At around 7 a.m., Bill Butterworth, the man building their sunroom, climbed into his van. The van had Sunshine Rooms logo blazoned on the side. He wasn't worried about whether the Fakers were home or not because he had received a key from Philip Fager to get in and out of the house as necessary. He kissed his wife goodbye and headed to the Fager home to finish the work on their sunroom. At around 9 a.m. Philip Fager drove his Volkswagen Rabbit to one of the three rental houses he owned. At the rental house, Philip chatted with a plumber and they even discussed Philip's new sunroom. The plumber stated Philip left the house around twelve thirty. Now, what happened next is how the investigators pieced together from the evidence they found at the crime scene. Between noon and one, A killer entered the Fager home. However, there are no signs of forcible entry. The killer drowned Kelly Fager's nude body in the hot tub. Her boyfriend states that Kelly usually wore a bathing suit while in the hot tub. Now due to the length of time in the hot tub and the temperature, they were unable to determine if a sexual assault occurred. Kelly was strangled with black electrical tape, but she was not bound. The killer then bound Sherry's wrist behind her back with half-inch black electrical tape. He then used the same tape to choke her to death. He thought she was dead, but there was somehow some bit of life in her. So when he put her in the hot tub and put the lid on it, she drowned. When Philip Fager returned home, he was still bundled up from the cold outside and the killer then shot Philip once in the back, lodging in his spine. Another bullet was fired at point blank range and went into his heart. Mary Fager returned when she returned home a few days after discovering Philip's body, she had go back to look at the house with the police. She noted that no valuables were missing, but she did notice the bathroom door looked like it had been kicked in. She did explain to the police, Philip Fager did not own a gun. However, authorities say Butterworth did. They, however, did note the type of gun had not been recovered, but they think the gun might have been a 38. Now, neighbors say they saw a Butterworth's van parked outside the Fager home at 1245. Another neighbor said when he left for work, Butterworth's van was still out there at 245. After finding the bodies, police were focused on finding the family's 1983 gray four-door Volkswagen Rabbit the Wichita Police Department had dozens of officers and detectives from other departments even working on this case. So four days later, they find the Volkswagen, but not in Wichita, Kansas. It was found in Stewart, Florida. And the driver was none other than Bill Butterworth the contractor, who had a key to the figure's house, and Kelly had told her boyfriend he made her feel uneasy. Butterworth was brought back to Wichita and charged with three counts of first-degree murder. William Thomas Butterworth was born in 1954. He grew up in Los Angeles. He had moved to Wichita, Kansas around 1977. He didn't have any relatives in the area, but he had lots of friends, according to the Wichita Eagle article. He hung out at a place called The Place, a popular bar at the time. It's located at 4859 East Harry, or it was located there. He was captain of the bar's softball team. He got married, and then he left Sunshine Rooms, Sunroom Installations, start his own sunroom business he was even named remodeler of the month by the national association of home builders earlier customers didn't have a bad thing to say about Butterworth but by late 1986 the sunroom hot tub phase was dying out and so was Butterworth's business He began laying off workers, stopped paying rent, and failed to renew his contractor's license. He also was a new father, one child at home already, and now the added stress of fraternal twins. So the friendly, beer-drinking, softball-playing Bill Butterworth, who had been rocking his own business, was now arrested in Florida, driving a murder victim's car. Butterworth told police the last thing he could remember was leaving for work. So Butterworth tells police the last thing he could remember was leaving for work that Wednesday morning. Butterworth's van, however, was found in the parking lot of McDonald's at 13th and Woodlawn. Coincidentally, the same McDonald's Kelly worked at. And it had something wrong with the transmission so getting the car in and out of gears so the police were having a hard time with that and they were able to do that because the keys were still in the ignition when authorities in Stewart Florida arrested Butterworth he was in the parking lot of a Howard Johnson's he hadn't checked in yet he was on the payphone speaking with his wife who was back in Wichita She had been trying to find Bill along with authorities because she put in a missing person. I mean, here he was, the house he's supposed to be at, the people had died. Nobody knew where her husband was. So yeah, she's going to put in a missing person. And coincidentally, somebody had emptied out their bank accounts. So now her husband was calling her from Florida. She did tell him police were on the way. Butterworth, as far as anybody knew, had no ties to Florida. And it's interesting, the same day Philip, Kelly, and Sherry are killed, Butterworth, for some reason, decides to take the Fagers family car. Somehow his van ends up at the McDonald's Kelly worked at. And he decides to drive to Florida, a trip that takes several days. Not only that, when police pick Butterworth up, he has changed his clothes from the day of the murder. His wedding ring and wallet are also missing. Butterworth says he has no idea where any of those items are at. Even under hypnosis, and we're going to get into the hypnosis thing, he has no idea where any of those items went. Bill Butterworth was assigned a public defender, and that's when Richard Nay comes in. Now, Richard Nay was just an average, nobody thought much of public defender. And he's turned out to be the defense attorney in Wichita. I mean, we're going to get into that, but, and especially I think it pivots because of this case, this case still features on his website. Now, when they bring Butterworth in, when the Wichita police bring Butterworth in, they take samples of his blood, his hair, they took pubic hair. I mean, they did the works and. The autopsy on Kelly had revealed some seminal fluid, but that's not saying a hundred percent again that she was sexually assaulted. We have to keep that in mind. The autopsy also revealed the girls were killed about an hour before Philip Butterworth is still saying he can't remember anything, but he's saying, okay, I wanna be hypnotized. I wanna be hypnotized to find out what's going on. So he's the, the wheel that's pushing this hypnotism thing along. So as they're going through the hearing, Richard Nay is like bringing out all the ammo he can to defend his client. But I mean, he's, he, he's getting kind of, he, he's, he's digging in a lot of areas. Um, and as he's doing it, it comes out that Mary Fager had received a, a letter because Richard Nay is saying I want all of the information that the Wichita police have on BTK and of course the opposing counsel is well what the hell does that have to do with anything? why do you want BTK BTK has nothing to do with Butterworth and the judge wants to know well then it comes out that Mary Fager had received a letter that had been authenticated by the Wichita police department to be actually from BTK and it's, he actually had sent a letter to Mary Fager where he discussed that, you know, we don't know what the letter actually says, but it was basically to the point that saying, you know, Hey, those killings weren't mine. Um, I didn't do it, but I do admire the killer's work. So, just another thing of why Dennis Rader is a complete asshole. He also brought up the still unsolved case of Shannon Olson. Now, Shannon Olson is a case we're going to be covering a little bit later on. Um, She's a 15-year-old Wichita girl. Her body was found floating in a pond here in Wichita, she had been stabbed over 40 times, 40, and her hands were bound behind her back and this was found uh, around Halloween. So it was a case that it was around the same time as the Fagers and it was a case that is still unsolved today, but they were saying again, this has nothing to do with the Faggers. you know, just because she was bound and found in water doesn't mean it's the same case. Um, the trial was held at the Sedgwick County Courthouse here in Wichita and it was held on our 10th floor. And it is something that, you know, I was, um, close to graduation at the time. This happened in May. Um, actually I could have already been around graduation. I don't remember, but I remember graduation at the time. Um, and I remember you just, you couldn't forget this because there were lines, lines of people waiting to get into this courtroom. This courtroom was standing room only for a while until the judge got sick of it. And, um, judge, I think his name was Monty Deer. Um, was like, all right, that's it. If you can't find a seat, then you're out of the courtroom. This cannot be a standing room only. We have hit fire code. You guys are out of here, but yeah, there were lines of people waiting to get into this courtroom. And I mean, they would line up, like he would say people could not get into the courtroom before 9 AM and there were people lining up, trying to get into the courthouse, like at 6 AM, it was crazy. Um. And it was just, it was not only reporters and TV cameras and radio stations. What got me is it looked like every retired person in Wichita. That's what was crazy to me is there was a lot of elderly people that attended these hearings. And I mean, a lot, I mean, the average age was like, oh, I'd say over 60 to 80 um, was the average age of the people who attended. It was really just crazy to me. Um, so during the trial, Butterworth, um, he had gone through the hypnosis. Now, Butterworth had really, really pushed for the hypnosis and Richard Nay, his attorney had ended up, um, finding him Dr. Pace. Now, Dr. Pace was a psychologist. He was a psychologist who had some experience with hypnosis and I got to tell you, I really went in deep because of my background, I really looked at the hypnosis thing and I got to tell you, it, it was really, I was really torn to sit and read to you guys the whole thing on the hypnosis, but I figured out how many of you actually would want to hear that. Um, because I don't know if any of you guys are as geeky as me, but I mean, I'm reading this and it's, it's like, he's admitting that there are times that Butterworth was not completely under, he was going into a partial hypnotic state. There, there was just so many things about this hypnosis that just really got under my skin it just, it really bothered me. Um, but they went through, um, seeing whether or not it would be allowed in court back and forth. And it ended up, um, being allowed by the Supreme Court. The hypnosis got allowed into court. One of the problems they had is Dr. Pace did not record any of their sessions. He only took notes and he even admits that he took notes to the best of what he could remember him saying or what he does. He doesn't even say that this is like a hundred percent valid. So there's just a lot of things that are really squiffy here that I'm going, ah, this kind of bugs me, but it's 1988. What can you do? Um, so during the trial, Butterworth testified that under hypnosis, I'm doing air quotes, under hypnosis, he recalled going to the Fager's home on December 30th. And I'm not trying to say one way or another of anything. I'm just wondering about this hypnosis thing. I want to put that out there. I'm not trying to, our legal system is our legal system and I, am saying that. I'm just saying this whole hypnosis thing is one thing that I'm kind of a little squiffy on because it just didn't, it didn't sound completely kosher to me. So I want to put that out there. Um, so during the trial, Butterworth testified that under hypnosis, he recalled going to the Fager's home on December 30th to finish work on the sunroom he had installed. He said he let himself into the room with his own key. He didn't hear or see anyone in the house as he spent the morning adding a coat of varnish to the interior doors. Then, as he was about to leave for lunch, Butterworth said Philip Fager came home and the two discussed a way to alleviate drainage problems with the sunroom. Butterworth fixed the drainage problem, and then he said he drives his van to the McDonald's at 13th and Woodlawn to eat lunch. He then says he returns to the house after 1.30. Now, let's remember, we have the neighbor across the street saying, his van was there the whole time. I kept looking back and forth, and he had a van there, so... He then says he returns to the house after one thirty, and he smells chlorine and hears sounds like the hot tub is running. You know, those sounds with the bubbles and the jets. And he says he immediately and why his mind went immediately to Kelly Fager. And he said he thought Kelly was there with her boyfriend. Budworth said while working on the center room, he had gone into the house to use the bathroom the bathroom where the door is broken and he had seen kelly and a young man in her parents bedroom he said that when he passed the pair he had the pair had then closed the door he said he felt very uncomfortable being there so he decides to run a few errands he goes shopping at montgomery wards where he still has the receipt so when he was picked up, he had that receipt. He didn't have his wedding ring and he didn't have his wallet or his clothes from that day, but he had the receipt from Montgomery wards. Now, while he was there, the clerk remembered him and he also recalled seeing some acquaintances while he was at the mall. One of whom was William Dots, a retired police captain. Now William Dots wasn't comfortable in having a discussion about what they talked about. But he did say during his interaction that Butterworth wasn't out of sorts. He was polite and didn't appear to be disheveled. Now, Butterworth says when he returned to the Fager house, he begins picking up his tools because it's now getting dark. And he says as he's picking up his tools, he drops a pencil down the basement stairs. He goes downstairs and he sees Sherry Fager in the hot tub. Now he's saying he did not see Kelly Fager. He even discusses how he heroically tries to pull Sherry from the hot tub. And then when he couldn't do that, he runs upstairs to the phone to find the phone to get help. But then he finds Philip Fager laying on the floor. He said he didn't appear to be injured, but when he touched him, he didn't move. And he just picks up the keys for some reason that are laying next to Philip. And then he hears a noise from the basement. And he walks to the stairs and he hears like a muffled cry or a scream. And then he's like, nope, I'm out of here. And he gets out of the house. And he goes to get into his van, but he realizes, oh shoot, I don't have my keys. I have Philip's keys. So then he jumps into the Volkswagen and drives away. So through all of this hypnosis, he never regains any additional bits of his memory as to what happened to the van, as to what happened to his wedding ring, his wallet, when he changed his clothes, anything about the drive. He doesn't remember what happened to his van. He doesn't know any of that other stuff. That's all he knows. And... He states, though, that he feels ashamed for being a coward and not doing more for the Fager family, and he cannot recover any more of his memory, except for that. And then when he calls his wife from Florida. Also during the trial, it's kind of important to note Butterworth had a gun. Um, he did own a gun, but he said that he got rid of it three months before the Fagers were killed. However, it was a twenty-two. And police were saying by the fragments and the bullet holes that they thought it was a thirty-eight or something along those lines. But, obviously, Butterworth is comfortable around guns. Um, and again, the state had presented eyewitnesses that had seen the van during their during the time at the Fager home for most of the day. Um, Even the times when Butterworth was saying he was not there. So with all of this information, the jury goes and they deliberate and they come back and Butterworth is acquitted and Wichita, Kansas is just incensed. The day after the acquittal, the Wichita Eagle published an article that says the jury fell for a lie. The Wichita Police Department, well, they decided they closed the case because as far as they were concerned, they had their killer and the jury let him go. Now, Lieutenant Ken Landwehr, and we all remember him, he's the guy who head up the crew and got BTK. And as far as I'm concerned, his legacy is he's the homicide rock star. I mean, this was the detective to end and begin all detectives. I still will always just think he's one of the most amazing detectives Wichita ever had. Um, but he always felt that he had just failed Mary Fager. And he said, you know. He just, he could not stand the smell of chlorine. Just that smell would bring those memories back up. And as far as the rest of the community in Wichita, Kansas, in this case, the emotions were hot as hell. Many in the community just took this verdict personally. Jury members started receiving death threats. But that didn't stop one man named Ron Blasey. Ron Blasey was the jury foreman. And after the trial, he became the loudest, most vocal critic of the Wichita police and the prosecutors. Blasey began telling anybody and everybody who would listen. He printed up pamphlets of his own theory of the Fager case. He believed the case had direct links to Satan and cults. He began citing that the murders in Wichita, all the murders that were going on, were connected to cults and that the Olson murder and the Fagers, those murders were, were connected. Now the Wichita police, they've already ruled out that possibility. They've looked into the evidence and they're like, there, there's no way. We've looked at it 10 ways a Sunday. It, it's not possible. But Blasey was not letting it go. And he became this man who was just out there citing Butterworth's innocence. And he said the police failed to rule out if Butterworth was under some sort of drug or hex during the night of the murder. And Blasey's mind asked the jury foreman, don't forget he was the jury foreman, Butterworth's loss of memory and unexplained trip to Florida were caused by a satanic group that wanted to kill the Fagers and frame Butterworth. Now, the other jurors are saying, you know, yes, he was our jury foreman and yeah, he was really pushing everybody for not guilty. They said the only thing Butterworth actually did, the only thing the police had was he stole a car. They had no other evidence. Um, so that's why they said not guilty, and they said, you know, just Owens at the time. The district attorney he just wasn't. He he thought that that's all the jury needed. Um, so they said it, it's, they didn't buy into Blazy's Satan theory, but they did think that the prosecution just did not have their ducks in a row to bring this case to trial. Now the gun was never found. No further evidence could ever be found directly linking Butterworth to the crime. When it comes to district attorneys, however, this case was a turning point. Nola Folston ran against District Attorney Owens that very year and she won. Now, I don't know if you guys know who Nola Folston is, but y'all need to look her up. She is infamous in Wichita because she's a badass and she is the woman boss. She knows how to rock the court cases when it comes to prosecution. Now, BTK ended up being apprehended in 2005. We covered that case in one of our podcasts and he had no problem discussing his crimes in very morbid detail. And I mean, very morbid detail. And with absolutely no emotion whatsoever. But he did deny any responsibility for the Fager family murders. He just repeated again that he really appreciated the way the killer did his the type of work. And I know people keep going back to BTK, but trust me, if Dennis Rader had anything to do with this, he would totally take credit because you really could see when discussed, he really lit up about how well that killing had been done in his mindset. So he would take credit if he did it. He obviously didn't do it. What else is really interesting is that Richard Ney, who had represented Butterworth also ends up representing Dennis Rader at his trial. So the Fager family murder is a case that's been tossed back and forth in Wichita, Kansas, and as I've noticed on a lot of other platforms online. Is the Fager family murders an unsolved case where the killer is unknown? Or is the Fager family murders a crime where the killer got away? The Wichita Eagle did an interview with William T. Butterworth a few days, maybe even a month after he was acquitted and they talked about how he's sitting on the porch, drinking his coffee and how he talked about wanting to stay in Kansas. But you've still got to wonder, is this case, was it the perfect crime where the killer got away? Or is it an unsolved crime where somebody else killed them and nobody knows who it might be find us on our Instagram and Twitter, where we'll be sharing pictures and information about this case. And also in case you hadn't seen on our Twitter and our Instagram, Krista Martin's case is now one of the cases that is on the website Uncovered, where it gives a chance for um, seasoned individuals to be able to research and put their theories out there about Krista Martin's crime. Also, the Wichita Police Department has a website for unsolved cases. They also have two detectives that are now assigned to the unsolved cases. That information is on our Instagram. We are incredibly excited to see that Krista Martin's case is on there. So it's extremely exciting to see and be able to see other unsolved crimes. And we will be sharing those crimes with you and seeing what we can do to raise awareness on those crimes as well again if you have any information on any unsolved crimes that have happened in the wichita or sedgwick county area also you can go to the sedgwick county website which we will provide on our instagram as well go to either one of those we'll also be providing those links on our podcast as well so you can go to those look at the unsolved crimes and if you have any information please Do not hesitate. Whatever information you have, big or small can make a difference. Look for us next week and we'll have a new podcast. Thanks a lot. Stay safe.